Thanks for joining us on a special episode of Hemispheric Views. Today, we have a different kind of show. We have a guest who um, probably needs no introduction, but we're going to provide an introduction anyway because we have an international audience. We have with us today, officially, it is His Excellency, the Honourable Kim Beasley AC, Governor of Western Australia. That is a mouthful. I actually know him more as my father-in-law, which is a lot easier. So I get away with calling him Kim, and I believe we're allowed to call you Kim for the rest of the show. Is that correct? (laughs) Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. So people who listen to our show normally would be hearing a bunch of tech stuff. They'd be hearing some cultural references, differences and similarities between Australia and the United States. So this is a little bit different, but there is a tie-in. The theme does work because Kim Beasley has a very interesting insight into the relationship between Australia and the United States. Do I need, should I just give the quick sort of background as to who you are, Kim? Do you think that would be a reasonable thing for me to do? Yeah, well, I've had a lot to do over my lengthy political career with the United States. I've always been fascinated by American history, American politics and the rest of it since I was a kid. Uh, I suppose growing up during the Vietnam War um, sort of really had America on our radar screen. Americans really have been on the Australian radar screen since the Second World War, but um, the the thing, uh, American soft power rides supreme here. I remember one leftist uh, commentator was not very pro-US complaining when uh, he said that young Australians absorb American culture like blotters. And uh, I think that's right. I, I, I think that's true. So, um, so the American presence here is ubiquitous. By a massive margin, the American uh, private sector invests is, is the leading investor in Australia, foreign investor in Australia. And I think, I can stand corrected on this, I think they invest, the US invests more in Australia than it does in China. So it's a, it's a very big presence here. And you become conscious of that in politics, but I became particularly conscious in the five to six years that I was Defence Minister. And then subsequently, of course, the six years I spent in the US as Ambassador. It, it is quite the CV you have. And just for some of our um, listeners that probably aren't so aware, you you were a federal politician in the Australian Labor Party for 27 years, I think. Yeah. So you're in, in federal government. You held a range of portfolios. And the one that jumped out at me most is the... Um, and that would appeal to our listeners would be that of communications minister. Oh, yeah. um, probably a very different type of communications as to what we have the, today, but nevertheless, it's, it ticked the nerd box. So we like that one. The one you, I imagine you liked most was being defence minister. Yep. And then obviously leader of the opposition for quite some time as well. The end of that distinguished parliamentary career, you went on to be ambassador, Australia's ambassador to the USA from 2010 to 2016. And now you're holding the role of Governor of Western Australia, which is essentially the Queen's representative as part of our parliamentary system from 2018 till the current day. I think that's a quite, it's not even the full CV, Kim, but it's the, it's the most important salient bits that I could pull out. But I thought we might just kick off with perhaps when people hear the word governor, and particularly in, in America, that may mean a very different thing. Could you just provide us an outline as to what a governor is in Western Australia? It's totally different from that in the United States. In the US, the executive is separate from the legislature. That applies uh, right the way around the United States. Uh, in Australia, the executive is in the legislature. So the governor is not the executive. Uh, as the governor is the executive in the in the US. Where the governor comes in is the fact that our constitutional arrangements have us as a constitutional monarchy, not a republic. And because we're a constitutional monarchy, there is some locus within the system for the Queen. In Britain, it's uh, very easy. The Queen sort of operates as a super governor in, uh, in the United Kingdom or a super governor. She's much more embedded in the political process that has to be said than the, the governors in the states which emulate the constitutional monarchy. So people keep trying to get me to uh, to respond to crises or issues that they find themselves in in the middle of West Australian politics to second guess the government. 
you point out to them that really uh, I represent only one person. Uh, the Premier of the state and the, and the Cabinet in the state, they represent the people. They're elected. I'm not elected. I'm appointed. And, uh, and that therefore, for me to uh, conduct any of the sort of interference that they'd want me to conduct would be invidious and anti-democratic. So the Constitution allows uh, for some level of intervention by the governor in the case of a complete impasse and breakdown in the uh, legislative process. But uh, those are events are as rare as hens to. Yeah, I think Martin is a bit of a fan of Australian politics, and he 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 might have he often wants us to have constitutional corner on our normal podcast. <laughs> he gets quite excited about that, this kind of stuff. <laughs> you got anything to say on that, Martin? <laughs> I suppose there's also a reason that the word controversy or controversial starts with CON as well. So I try to restrain myself <laughs> from bringing that up on the podcast. <laughs> but uh, today's a much more appropriate time, I think. Uh, but you're right, Andrew. That uh, I, I love that whole topic and. Uh, your Excellency, I have to say it at least once, Kim. Um, it's really exciting to have you on the show today. And I remember very vividly as a kid uh, when you were actually the federal opposition leader, as uh, Andrew mentioned. And even though I didn't quite appreciate it all at the time and what the system was and how everything worked, it's amazing how that kind of time leaves an impression on you. And to speak to you today is actually a great pleasure. It's, uh, it's interesting how these things come around. Mm. I'd like to ask you a question, actually, because we've mentioned Western Australia. It's where you're based. People listening to the show get a taste and a, and a flavour of what Western Australia is from Andrew. I've only ever had the pleasure of visiting once. How would you describe Western Australia to our audience? Well, we were once known as the, uh, the state of the sun, the sea, the sand, sore eyes and Sir John Forrest, who was the first premier. And uh, the sore eyes was the, uh, the sort of blinding sun and the sand and wind needed to um, give us various eye diseases. Yeah. So, uh, so that's, that sort of era is somewhat behind us now. Uh, this is a very fast growing state. Uh, when I was boy, when I say 15 years old, for argument's sake, in this city of ours in Perth, there are about 500,000 people and 65% of them had been born in Western Australia. So I was one of the majority, and it was a very small city. It's now two and a half million people, and um, or a bit less than that, but two to two and a half million, and uh, and the majority of people are born elsewhere. So it's it's had a huge influx of population, and that's been built largely on the fact that it's become we have become the capital of probably the world's largest mineral province. And so you've got here in Western Australia, the old minerals, if you like, the, uh, the, uh, the iron ores uh, and, and aluminas, uh, bauxite and, and so on, the old, the old ores, the old minerals, and we've also got all the new, all the rare earths. We've got a stack of them here. We've got the biggest rare earth mine in the world. And, and then you've got on top of that, you've got nickel, you've got cobalt, you've got uh, a, uh, a lithium, a huge lithium um, production here. So you've just got a whole range of, um, of critical minerals. That's driven an enormous amount of wealth and it's driven a, a lot of um, uh, innovative technology. And the technology is done not in the mines, the technology is done around here. Uh, our mines tend to be highly robotized. So NASA's come over to partner with one of our uh, producers, Woodside, as they think that uh, Woodside is more advanced than they are in robotization. So they want to use the Australian that Woodside product uh, and technology in their moon rovers that they're developing at the moment with a view to using also Mars rovers, sub rovers subsequently. So the, uh, the state's really um, quite an exciting phase. Uh, that's interesting. It makes an interesting place to be. Plus, it's got a beautiful light. It's a good place to visit when you're allowed to. We're not letting many people in at the moment. We are allowed to. You have to quarantine. <laughs> it's a bit of a challenge at the moment. Yes. This is probably like one that Jason might be able to reflect on the best. We're, look, we're thinking about the time that you were the ambassador to the United States and you in that time, I imagine you encountered 
many interesting people. Is there anybody that, that jumps out to you as somebody particularly interesting that you met during that time? Well, you, you can't go much past the president of the day. It was Barack Obama. Uh, he was a, a fascinating bloke to listen talk, uh, which, which I did um, a few times, uh, not super often. I met Joe Biden more often than that. I, I sort of got, he did a very kind thing to me when, when I left from being ambassador. He said, why don't you come down and have a, he's vice president, come down and have a chat. So I got all his staff in and we just bulldusted for about an hour or so about politics. And some of our experiences were more or less in common <laughs> in, the, uh, in the political arena. So it was a um, it was a nice opportunity. So Joe was pretty impressive. Uh, the president was pretty impressive. I found Hillary Clinton impressive. She was a very good Secretary of State. I mean, if she'd chosen not to run for president, she would be up there in the pantheon of great American politicians and great American Secretary of States. But her reputation was sort of uh, massively trashed during the course of the presidential campaign, which I. I think it's a tragedy for her. So, uh, so she was impressive. I'd seen him before, met him a few times. Henry Kissinger, of course, um, and, and likewise George Shultz. Uh, but I, I'd known him very well back when I was defence minister. Uh, look, there are just so many. Uh, the thing about the United States is sort of the massive intellectual heft of the place. Well, we've, we've got one here. We've got Jason. So, yeah, that just yeah, right. intellectual heft right <laughs> with us today. <laughs> <laughs> is that a term that you associate with, Jason, intellectual heft? Always. <laughs> what uh, in, in terms of that six-year period, 2010 to 2016, what does that actually look like from your point of view? Is this a heavy travel type of position where you're back and forth between Australia and the United States often, or is it paperwork based for lack of a Not paperwork term? based. I used to say to the staff at the embassy, this is where it is most important for me to be. Mm-hmm. We have fabulous access in Washington, in DC. And um, if you want me to leave here for any purpose, you better have a very good reason. As it happens, I did get out to about, I think it was 27 states, but not to see them really. I I took a couple of holidays down in Florida and semi-holidays across in LA. I had a daughter who was studying at USC at the time. So, uh, but basically it was DC and it's just, it's just a massive information bank. Because even though you'd, every week, more or less, you'd be in the State Department, you'd be in the White House or Executive Office building, you'd be in, less often, the Pentagon and CIA and, uh, and other arms of American intelligence, uh, you'd be constantly meeting with the people from the various peak agencies amongst American exporters and the like. Uh, in business side of things. And then the think tank, so there's over 300 of them in Washington. You're at, the, you're at peak info and, and you've got to drag all this together and write home on the things that uh, home, the home is, uh, the department is, uh, and the other departments are fascinated by. So I, I did get chastised by one of the intelligence agencies once. My cables weren't interesting enough and I said, oh, I thought they were pretty good. And, they, and he said, yes, we want gossip. So... <laughs> I had to go and become a gossip columnist for the benefit of the the Office of National Assessment. Um, I was going to say, when you were having these various meetings with US officials and so on, were there moments where the Australian sensibilities just didn't transfer or didn't translate? Would they sometimes miss your point because you had an Australian way of thinking or seeing the world? That was always possible. Um, American humour doesn't run heavily to irony, and and occasionally, if you if you're being ironical, you are misunderstood. And Americans, being ultra polite, think that they've somehow offended you, or you're worried about something, and immediately rush to try and work out how they can ameliorate it. So, but I didn't offer. You know, I, I I knew a lot of Americans. I, I've been with Americans most of my life, and. Um, so I get, I get to know them pretty well, and I know how to avoid uh, elements of the Australian language which is alien, which are alien or different uh, for them. 
So I, um, I didn't have too much problems with the translations. And the great thing about the people you talk to in the US is that they're, they're not very circumspect. They talk very openly. You don't sit down and have a sort of gentlemanly debate or discussion with whoever it is you're seeing on the other side. And that's useful because actually you do get exactly what they mean and what they're talking about, and you can convey that home because sometimes home doesn't pick up. And um, that is important that they do because when you're an ambassador, you're actually dealing, well, we're dealing with forces in the field and that sort of thing in Iraq and Afghanistan. <clears throat> so these are issues which may be issues ultimately of life and death, you're dealing with, with big picture items, the character of our relationships in this region, the character of our relationships with other countries like China. It's it's pretty full on. It, it, it is pretty high stakes stuff when you're an ambassador in the United States, if you're Australian. It's our most important relationship. It's, our, it's only our third biggest embassy, I have to say. The biggest embassy is Indonesia. And the second biggest is uh, Papua New Guinea. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. Never picked that. Jason, do you have any uh, a rebuttal to those <laughs> that, that, that characterization? Well, I'm, I'm a little ashamed we're only third in terms of the largest embassies. We'll work on that for sure. Um, I, I, would never, I would never ask you to pick a favorite state in the United States because that's just going to cause all kinds of controversy from our side. But let's just say... Which area of the U.S. did you find to be most like back home and which was just completely opposite? Uh, where I like being, I love being in D.C. I love being in Virginia and around these areas around. Beautiful place, hmm. wonderful historical location. If somebody said you're going to go and live in the United States, I'd probably pick the Virginia immediately to, uh, to D.C. That's what I'd do. Hmm. Uh, fascinating places that look like the nearest thing to Perth, I think, is San Diego. Oh. When you go there, you have a bit of a sense that you've just gone home. And then Sydney is got a lot in common with LA. Hmm. Um, Melbourne is more like, say, Philadelphia. Um, that's more the ambience of, uh, of Melbourne. Uh, Brisbane, well, also San Diego, very similar uh, in setup to San Diego, or one of those cities along the coastline of California. Uh, we, we're not wet enough to be like Seattle or Portland. So <laughs> the, uh, we're a bit dry. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really, um, but that's, yeah, it's the West Coast of the United States generally, but not exclusively that provides the nearest equivalence to uh, to Australia. Happy to hear it. And you mentioned the way the light is different in Perth. Is that something to do with being on the west coast facing an ocean? Could be. It's also the general cloudlessness of the place. Um, uh, San Diego is like that too. It's no accident the American film industry is in LA and Southern California. It's light. And, um, and the light that is there is the same light that there is in Western Australia. We have over here an American actress named Kate Walsh. Uh, she was in um, uh, uh, various medical dramas and the like in, the, in American TV and uh, a few films and the rest of it. And uh, she's desperately trying to get up a film studio here uh, or encourage us to get up a film studio here because she thinks that this is the best light that she's come across for the purposes of filming in her career. I had never heard that that trait, <laughs> and I've lived here all my life. <laughs> Did, totally unaware of that one. Shows how much I know about cinematography. Can I ask you, Kim, I just want this to, this is the family family section of the, uh, the questioning here. You obviously come from a line of politicians before you. Your father was a politician, and you, you've sort of been the, the end of that line for, for some time. Suddenly now you're not the caboose, but you're a middle carriage because your daughter and my wife, Hannah, is now a member of parliament in the WA yes. parliament. Now, conscious of your, your role and your separation from, <laughs> from that, I don't want to get you in any trouble about what you say, but from a, from a, a personal experiential point of view, 
How does it feel to not be sort of the end of the line of the Beasleys in politics nowadays? I'm very proud. Um, I'm very proud of Hannah. I'm very grateful for what a wonderful support for her that you are. If you take the three of us, she's easily the most talented, and that's what you'd expect, you know. You get better and better and better. There's a slight dip in the middle, however, in my case. I'm the dad, and Hannah is way ahead of me. (laughs) She's, uh, She's the real deal. She's a great retail politician, and she's a great retail politician in the modern age, if you like. In, in my time, when I was a member of parliament, I, social media was negligible. It, it's been at the same time democratising but also extremely troubling because what it does permit is the spread of lies and bulldust and, and often those lies are dangerous and um, enormously damaging to the societies in which they're, in, in which they're promulgated uh, with a very easy mechanism of promulgation. On the other hand, it's been enormously democratised because um, it does enable an individual voice. Now, when I started off in politics, there are no individual voices, no mechanism for the ordinary Joe uh, to get his or her view up to um, a consideration of the broader public. Uh, now they can. And uh, it also means that a lot of campaigning now, uh, which used to cost a load of money uh, when I was in the uh, in the business, now very inexpensive, provided you do your social media well, uh, it doesn't cost you much. That's an important attribute, uh, enormously important if you're of a movement or an individual who doesn't actually have much uh, of that or capacity to access such resources. So Hannah has mastered all the contemporary technologies in relation to political campaigning, political communications, um, policy development and the like. So she's a special. Martin, you're our social media guru here on the show. So take it away from there on that topic. That's very kind. I'm glad you brought up the point about social media. And uh, yeah, if, if Hannah has managed to balance that and achieve that, that's amazing because I don't think anyone is free of social media injuries or controversies or arguments online. It's very easy to attract. And a great point you raised about individual voices being able to rise up or say something on a much less, I suppose, political note generally. This podcast and many other podcasts are great examples of that, the way that technology is so much more accessible and affordable that you can have different voices voices rising up. Where I suppose we're examples of uh, fairly privileged white males in this regard, but there are lots of people who've been able to yeah, have themselves heard who haven't before. On that topic of technology, though, and how things have changed, uh, how would you say there are other ways that technology might have uh, improved or developed over the course of your uh, political and now uh, current career? What would you say are some things that have changed that you've had to grapple with or adapt to? Ah, uh, many things. Um, 24-hour news cycles. Uh, that is, uh, it, it makes it extraordinarily difficult uh, the exposition and development of a long-term proposition. And it means you're constantly, you know, when you may be trying to convey to the public a theme that you think is important to them, you're going to get easily knocked aside by the latest thing that people want to play with. I mean, what I've, I tend to find with the younger generation are totally tech-savvy and totally... Well, tech-savvy is a silly expression, really. It's just integrating their personality. I mean, I look at my younger daughter, youngest daughter, and she sits with a computer in front of her. She doesn't look at her hands. And, and her hands just move across the computer without seemingly thinking. And she translates uh, whatever it is in her head straight onto the computer without resting for a moment. Uh, that, that familiarity is at the most, at the one time, enormously enabling and at another level, um, incredibly dissipating, diffusing. It means you're casting multiple lines simultaneously. And if you're trying to get people to solidly focus on an issue or something that they need to deal with, then it becomes extremely hard to get up what becomes very soon a boring thing uh, without finding uh, everybody's attention taken by a toy that somebody drops into the middle of the process. 
I mean, we witnessed that in the previous American administration. I mean, Trump has a genius for being able to distract. So a sort of a line can be running and he'll come out with some outrageous statement and everybody goes and plays with that for the next 24 hours, usually in an area where he thinks he strengthens himself and, and usually he does. And then it uh, you, you come back and um, uh, start another track going and then another toy gets thrown in by him and, and everybody goes off and plays with that. So it's a, it's sort of, it's taken a lot of the solidity out of things. It's also taken, I think, the capacity to develop a long and deep, both argument and program. Something I've noticed about young, young people, when you're talking to them, they're, they're all over every issue. They're, they're really very knowledgeable, but they don't go beyond about three or four paragraphs. And um, it's a, uh, this is potentially a bit of a problem when what you actually need is a bit of depth. I was sort of contrasting the modern form of government, or you take federal government here, compared to government that I was engaged in in the 80s when I was a defence minister. In those days, uh, the deed was the deed. In other words, your focus was on what it is that you wanted to do, acquire, build, change, transform, whatever. Now, for a lot of politicians, the word is the deed. The deed is no longer the deed. The word is the deed. So they will say something right about climate. They're on the left. They'll say something appealing about race or something else if they're on the right um uh immigration or and, and what it is is this endless flow of crap uh unmitigated crap to somebody it's virtue signaling and there are a whole one of the things i think we do understand thoroughly now there is no such thing as the people there are very many peoples uh, located in a in a location and will all very different views and the rest of it so but none of this stuff actually advances the coherence or effectiveness of society. I think America survives having, uh, experiencing in many ways the worst of this, because the US is such a brilliantly inventive people. So the fact that it is, uh, if, if you're looking for focus in the United States, the place is an anarchy. Uh, there are many societies more focused, but they're very much more undesirable societies to be frank. But at least in the case of the United States, its character means that it is always inventing things and changing things. And, uh, and that in many ways is its strength. It falls behind every now and then technologically and six months later it'll be ahead again. But other societies don't have that flexibility. So I think that mitigates um, the, the potentially baneful impacts of that sort of diffusion um, when it comes to American politics. I really love the point that you made about a loss or uh, a degradation in the focus that we can all achieve because tying things in with our audience, a lot of people who listen to us and with whom we communicate online are really interested in technology and how it can be used for their work or creative endeavours or leisure or whatever, you, you name it. And something that comes up a lot on the networks that we engage with, particularly micro.blog where we met, is people are often talking about what tools are you using? What are you using to read your news? How are you minimizing or focusing on what you're consuming or what you're working on? So I think what you say about the US being kind of... Uh, lacking in focus has bled out elsewhere in the world because I often feel that myself. Uh, I, I went to school learning how to handwrite and having everything in print, but as the years have gone on, more and more things have become digital, things have become hyper-efficient and so much more searchable, but you feel that lack of focus as you jump from task to task, from event to event, story to story. J just quickly, and I, I know we've spoken a bit about this technological thing here, do you find yourself having to strive for focus sometimes even in your own life uh, well i'm i'm too uh embedded as a dinosaur <laughs> i don't know what else does but i do and um a good thing maybe and, and when it comes to uh technology i have to ask uh, andrew or <laughs> i'm always here for tech support <laughs> that is a role i play <laughs> I, 
want my my children to uh, to come and help out because I'm hopeless. I am a technological dinosaur. So yeah, I, I mean, I don't extend really beyond Google, <laughs> um, Google and emails. So that's it for me. But it's still it is a uh, it, it's a powerful. I mean, the technologies now are immensely powerful, and and when we contemplate the fact that about five years from now they'll be infinitely more sophisticated than they are now, uh, it does boggle the mind and. Um, so I think the sort of complaints I make about it are, are just spitting in the wind. Frankly, uh, this is the this is the way we're going to go, and um, it, and and I think it, it has the means of workarounds. So you get a place like China, which you know basically censors the uh, people's access to information. And, and even half bright technologists in the United States, in in China work their way around all the uh, all the walls that the, the government puts in place to prevent them from seeing what's happening elsewhere. The, the Chinese know exactly what's going on in the United States, even though that's and they know what the United States thinks of them. <laughs> they will all know somebody can work their way around all the barriers that the technological barriers that the Chinese government puts in place. The Chinese, Chinese are pretty advanced technologically, but the Chinese people much more so. Well, I, I think, as I said before, it's possibly not such a bad thing to be a dinosaur, as you called yourself. Yeah, no, I, it can be exhausting seeking focus. So I'm pretty focused. Thumbs up from me. I think that's great. We should all be more of a dinosaur. That's um, that, that, what we've got next, uh, Kim. We, we came up with some questions that we, we've classified as the rapid fire round. So these are some sort of quick questions we thought we'd ask of you. Jason, we, we talked about this a bit before we started recording, but I think it's important that you get this question taken care of. In terms of traveling to Portland, Oregon, lovely, lovely Portland, Oregon that we thought maybe uh, you had been to, but it sounds like maybe not. <laughs> no, the nearest I got to you, mate, was Seattle. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll, we'll count it as close enough. Yeah, right. Uh, but Seattle is lovely. <laughs> Well, Jason, ask the, ask the next one then, Jason. Oh, boy. Uh, okay, you're going to put me on the spot for this one. Great. So you get to choose where you're going to live, and your choices are Perth, Wollongong, or Portland slash Seattle, since you haven't been here. <laughs> I can live in all Perth. I really could. Even Wollongong? <laughs> hey, now. Oh, come on. Wollongong the brave. It's a uh, – I, I, I think it's a great town. I, I've enjoyed visiting there on, on numerous occasions. I like the politics of Wollongong, I have to say. But I had this view when I was um, uh, the leader of the opposition. I went to this thing, uh, this Sydney um, Development Forum, and I said, look, I'm going to tell you something I'm not going to put out in the promise because in these days where you have to look fiscally, have great fiscal rectitude, you can't get away with it, but I know that we can afford it. And what I want to do and will do, and then it would have cost about 12 or 14 billion. It wasn't super oppressive. I want to do a, um, a maglev rail line that goes through, uh, starts in Canberra, goes through Goulburn, Wollongong, into Sydney, then up through to Byron Bay. And uh, <clears throat> that if you do that, you actually, instead of spreading Sydney, you know, now to increasingly getting towards across the Blue Mountains, but an uncontrollable, um, a really uncontrollable road, sclerotic road system in the uh, in the town. You actually spread the population to satellite cities where amenity is going to be much better. And because it's so fast, you'd, you'd be from any one of those points maximum about an hour away from the CBD and from Wollongong, you know, like about 10 or 15 minutes away from the CBD. And um, and that would totally transform the development of the city. Unfortunately, I never got the chance to do that. But that would have, then in those days, that would have cost 14 billion. You could use a maglev, it's not very good for, for freight transport, but it's, it sits easily on the environment. It's, uh, you don't have to cut. If you used any other fast rail system to go to Newcastle, you have to cut through the mountain, cross the earth. You just go over. 
when you've got uh, you've got maglev and uh, all round and and so it's a uh, it's a shame I never got the chance to do that. I think it would have been quite transformative in New South Wales. It would have been quite transformative in Wollongong. I think Martin complains about having to take the train from Wollongong to Sydney, don't you? Isn't that one of your pet peeves? Uh, in the past, yes, yes. <laughs> you wouldn't worry about this one, mate. You'd be there in about 15, 20 minutes. If, if it had been realised, uh, my hands would be aching from endless applause. <laughs> and Seattle is a lovely place to be. Uh, they've got quite a big collection okay. of their Museum of Aboriginal Artefacts. Really? Uh, museum Art Gallery, whatever it is. It's brilliant. And and I I love Seattle. I I like Washington. When I was defence minister, I really wanted to restructure the Australian Army like the uh, the American Ninth Infantry Division, which was at um, at Fort in, in near Seattle. Um, I, and and I remember meeting uh, storming storming Norman Schwartz, was <laughs> famous for uh, battles in Kuwait. And um, uh, he was the, the head of I Corps then, which is headquartered in Seattle. And he just, he just, just most extraordinarily beautiful place. Well, Kim, you have not lost your political skills because we asked you to choose one, and you just successfully chose all three. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wollongong got some good airtime though, so I'm going to take that it as a win. It did. It did. Quickly, <laughs> you were talking about the maglev train. I'm curious. You've obviously spent time around the U.S., 27 states. You're in Australia now and have been for a while. What do you find to be differences and similarities between public transportation of Australia versus the United States? Because we historically have not been, I will say, great at public transportation. And uh, No, that's right. Aspects of pure brilliance and, and terrifically convenient. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Amtrak between Washington and New York. That was good. And it was it was a nice service. Um, US is, you've got a different challenge. Uh, the US just has a mass of people to move. You've got to remember that the continental United States, you know, exclude Alaska, Hawaii, uh, continental United States is the same size as Australia. And in the continental United States, you've got 330 million people. And in Australia, you've got 25 million. That completely changes all the things that you could conceivably think about when it comes to transport challenges. I mean, you, you, in Greater New York, you've got half the population of Australia slotted into an area probably about the size of Sydney. And uh, and Sydney, we had, we struggle with public transport in Sydney. It's okay, <clears throat> but it's a source of constant complaint. Imagine being with half the population of Australia sitting in the same area, <laughs> trying to manage, manage the public transport issues which flow from that. <laughs> you know, United States is such a massive place. It's a big country, but in population terms, it is simply massive. And, um, and so anything that you do is always going to be challenged. You're going to be always logistically challenged. You're always going to be challenged in transport terms. You know, in, uh, I used to be aviation minister at one point of time in Australia when we had such a portfolio. It's now rolled up in transport. It wasn't then. What they used to point out to me in this area, which is the same as the continental United States, we fly one and a half percent of the world's paid passenger miles. The US flies 65 percent of the world's paid passenger miles. That's all in the same area. It's amazing. You know, people sit around, they have their complaints about the US on this or that front. I think it's brilliant that the US actually works. <laughs> and, and, and it works. <laughs> Democratically, no, you, you, uh, one could imagine a totalitarian system uh, that shot its way to obedience. Um, you, you would probably find management a lot easier in those circumstances. God, would you want to live? And um, that's the uh, and that's the thing. The, the US actually manages to make it itself livable, but it's sort of. One of the odd things about the US when I was there, you become very conscious you're actually not dealing with one country. Mm -hmm. The American colonies and then the subsequently expanded states 
were each of them particular unto themselves. The, the unity enforced by the creation of the nation was a unity which did not necessarily fit uh, the people who were actually there. So now you, probably in the US you've got half a dozen countries, but with a perfectly functioning trading system, free trade system between them, uh, which allows for great economic efficiency. Um, our Europe, which is of a similar size, slightly bigger in population terms, slightly smaller in geography, um, well, they can't quite make it. So America is would probably have been like Europe if it had um, developed according to its own separateness, but it never did. And Australia has Queensland. We have Queensland. <laughs> of Australia would say they have Western Australia. <laughs> Shame on them. <laughs> Kim, you said that you're, you're a bit of a technological Luddite. So what is your favourite computing device? You have to pick one. A mobile phone. <laughs> Nothing else. And that is an iPhone, isn't it? Just, just an iPhone, yeah. yeah. Good to clarify. I don't have a laptop. I, I basically just use the iPhone because the, anything you particularly get off a laptop, you get off an iPhone. So I, I sometimes think my staff must think I'm a lazy bastard because I'm sitting there behind my desk playing <laughs> my iPhone all day long, sending my emails in there and communicating all over the place. Can I just jump in here? And this might come across as... Uh unnecessary flattery but I, I mean this you called yourself a dinosaur but when the iphone came out and then the ipad uh, a lot of listeners here who are apple fans particularly might remember that steve jobs and others kind of said oh we've entered the post pc era where the laptop and the desktop is you know th they're less necessary they're things of the past so really you leap you leapfrogged uh, or you leapt ahead of everyone <laughs> and took on that post pc philosophy you're, you're further ahead than most people i would say yeah, but I think I think the PC is um, allows you to order your thoughts in a way much more effectively than an iPhone does. I think there's something about having that uh, that um, well effectively typewriter in front of you that uh, that enables you to uh, uh, yeah, to think a bit more clearly. Well, it brings it brings back to your point of being focused, right? That that's yeah, the focus, yeah. whereas your mobile device is your shallow but broad. That's probably right. Okay. Now we're tack tackling another huge issue here. When you're in the US, did you discover a favorite food oh boy. that mm. you can no longer obtain now that you're back in Australia? Oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, did. I I mean I had to, I hate to tell you this, Jason, but um, basically food in the US is not as good as food in Australia. <laughs> in one particular. Uh, we do produce a better quality food here. And of course, we have to feed far fewer people. And so uh, there's, a, uh, there's a certain advantage that we have here. But the US kills us in all forms of meat. Uh, American steak is much better. Mm. Now, that, that doesn't mean it's much healthier. No. Nope. American steak is, steak is basically marbled, it's basically grain fed. Australian steak is grass-fed and a stringy crap, and, uh, but it's very healthy. But, uh, but American hamburgers are vastly superior to Australian hamburgers. Anything you care to name that is related to red meat, uh, the US does much better. Anything unhealthy, that's what we're known for. I, I, I <laughs> don't really bother turning up at steakhouses here. But um, in the US, I would all the time because you knew you'd get a great fee. So, so I do miss, I miss American steaks uh, over here. And so I've become much less of a steak eater. Just to flip that question, if you don't mind, when you were in the US, what was it that you missed about Australian cuisine or produce? Oh, well, the quality. Uh, I, I did miss that um, quite a lot in um, the, uh, anywhere where I was eating, basically. So, so that was, and, and Australian ethnic food, I mean, it just struck me that um, uh, Indian restaurants, uh, pretty close in the US, uh, but I still thought ours were better. Chinese, ours a lot better. 
since I'm a deputy of ethnic food, I, I did miss that. You know, you don't want to spend your whole time feeding, do you? And if you feeding the mind is a lot blinking easier in the US than it is in Australia. <laughs> Kim, you've had a long and distinguished career in public service. And this may so this may be an impossible question, but of what achievement would you say you are most proud? Oh mate. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> Normally I sit down and go through the restructuring of Australian Defence Forces uh, in discussing that. Or I would go to, when I was opposition leader, being the first person to put targets into an election campaign to deal with the consequences of global warming. Uh, that was the 2001 election. Um, it's, I'd put that down. I, I'd put down the reform of communications where we introduced sort of... Um, uh, private competition as a telecommunications system. Uh, but nowadays, in the environment in which we are now, constitutional collapse, I think the 1984 Electoral Act, in which was not my invention, but I had to be the minister to, to shepherd it through Parliament, uh, but it was done by our party bosses who, you know, in the way in which our system works, uh, always a few of the people who are party secretaries at state level or party directors at state level find their way into the House or Senate. And it did so happen in 1983 that there was a really quite potent collection of them from the Liberal Party and Labor Party sides. And they decided after over a couple of beers that they would mutually disarm. So how about we stop trying to rot the electoral system and we create the fairest system in the world. And they sat down and worked that out. They did it with a, uh, a self-denying ordinance really on the Labor Party, which was that in all the things that they were suggesting, if one side really objected, now they'd disagree, but if they really objected and put up a red flag, the other side wouldn't do it. So it was a restraint really on the Labor Party because we had the numbers. And, um, but uh, we stuck to that. And there was one thing the Liberals put up a red flag on, which the Labor Party then didn't do because of their, their level of objection. But we introduced totally independent boundaries. Uh, we introduced, and forcibly so, regularly redistributed boundaries. So they could be actually distributed between each election, redistributed, if the formulas that were put in place to govern the direction of the uh, uh, the distribution uh, provided a situation where too many seats got out of kilter, and they can in a fast-growing area. But that can happen, and you, you have to do then a redistricting to deal with that. So we had that in a totally independent process by which that was done. Uh, we introduced uh, uh, much easier voting with pre-polls, that sort of thing, sort of stuff that the Americans were doing last time, uh, last presidential election, you could see. And um, we had, you know, uh, publicly funded election campaigns uh, that came in. There's just a, a lot of change. We put party designations on the ballot paper. That wouldn't seem like much to Americans, but what that does, of course, is if people don't actually have poll workers adjacent to them, they actually know who's what uh, on the ballot paper, which is a big help. So there are all this sort of stuff that we put in place. And um, and we introduced, I think, the fairest electoral system in the world, the most certainly most honest and least politically interfered. And um, it got through. Everybody has forgotten how that happened. Everybody's forgotten how it started. But it started with uh, some of the biggest oriented in the rotting direction of all sides of Australian politics, just deciding to declare themselves redundant. And, um, and it was a great thing. Every now and then people try to interfere with that. The latest interference is attempts to introduce photographic identification for the vote and that sort of thing. Uh, and every now and sometimes changing uh, the declaration donations. That, so the, people tended to forget the, the sort of self-denying ordinance type capability that was there in the 84 Act when they now, 30 years on, try to do amendments to it. So, you know, it helps to be old sometimes. You've got to wonder the people who are actually legislating now. That's a fascinating answer and not one that I expected. But you're right. In this, I think the Australian public 
sort of take all that for granted these days yeah. and expect the AEC to do their job and the Electoral Commission to do their job and you know, manage the election fairly. And it's sort of it's just an assumed part of the deal now. And you saw, I think, public got a bit into an uproar when there were attempts to change that and have identification more recently of the vote, that kind of thing. That did seem like the public pushed back against it. And I think it's it's become a cultural norm. And that's what we expect from an election, that it's yeah. free and fair and left alone by the from the politicians as such. So well done. Great answer. <laughs> All good. That, I think, gets us to the end of our questions. I'll you know, pass over to the other guys if there's anything else they wanted to say. I'll just throw in a concluding thought that this has been a tremendous pleasure and uh, a wonderful answer at the end, I would agree. And I think it also speaks to what you were saying about a lot of people these days not really reading past the three or four initial paragraphs. It's good to have that longer memory uh, be grateful for the system that we're in and, and what we're achieving. And yeah, I, I think I might take on more of your technological ideas. I got, I got to say, it's lovely talking to you, blokes, uh, and well done in getting this together, putting it together. What a great, it, Sometimes you think the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and then you do things like this and you realise probably it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think that every single week. Thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Yes, wonderful. Thank you so much. That that was, I'm going to say this one more time, His Excellency, the Honourable Kim Beasley, AC, Governor of Western Australia. That's fun to say. Thank you for joining us on Hemispheric Views. Bye, good chat to you, fellas.